Chapter Six, Part One of a Narrative of a Revolutionary Soldier Some of the Adventures, Dangers, and Sufferings of Joseph Plum Martin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Campaign of seventeen eighty, Part One The soldier defending his country's rights is grieved when that country his services slights, but when he remonstrates and finds no relief, no wonder his anger takes place of his grief. The winter of 1779 and 80 was very severe. It has been denominated the hard winter, and hard it was to the army in particular, in more respects than one. The period of the revolution has repeatedly been styled the times that tried men's souls. I often found that those times not only tried men's souls, but their bodies too. I know they did mine, and that effectually. Sometime in the month of January there happened to be a spell of remarkably cold weather. In the height of the cold, a large detachment from the army was sent off on an expedition against some fortifications held by the British on Staten Island. The detachment was commanded by Major General John Sullivan. It was supposed by our officers that the bay before New York was frozen sufficiently to prevent any succors being sent to the garrisons in their works. It was therefore determined to endeavor to surprise them and get possession of their fortifications before they could obtain help. Accordingly, our troops were all conveyed in sleighs and other carriages, but the enemy got intelligence of our approach, doubtless by some Tory, before our arrival on the island. When we arrived, we found Johnny Bull prepared for our reception. He was always complacent, especially when his own honor or credit was concerned. We accordingly found them all waiting for us, so that we could not surprise them, and to take their works by storm looked too hazardous. To besiege them in regular form was out of the question, as the bay was not frozen so much as we expected. There was an armed brig lying in the ice not far from the shore. She received a few shots from our field pieces for a morning salutation. We then fell back a little distance and took up our abode for the night upon a bare bleak hill in full rake of the northwest wind, with no other covering or shelter than the canopy of the heavens, and no fuel but some old rotten rails which we dug up through the snow, which was two or three feet deep. The weather was cold enough to cut a man in two. We lay on this accommodating spot till morning, when we began our retreat from the island. The British were quickly in pursuit. They attacked our rear guard and made several of them prisoners, among whom was one of my particular associates. Poor young fellow! I have never seen or heard anything from him since. We arrived at camp after a tedious and cold march of many hours, some with frozen toes, some with frozen fingers and ears, and half-starved into the bargain. Thus ended our Staten Island expedition. Soon after this there came on several severe snowstorms. At one time it snowed the greater part of four days successfully, and there fell nearly as many feet deep of snow and here was the keystone of the arch of starvation. We were absolutely, literally starved. I do solemnly declare that I did not put a single morsel of victuals into my mouth for four days and as many nights, except a little black birch bark which I gnawed off a stick of wood, if that can be called victuals. I saw several of the men roast their old shoes and eat them, and I was afterwards informed by one of the officer's waiters that some of the officers killed and ate a favorite little dog that belonged to one of them. If this was not suffering, I request to be informed what can pass under that name. If suffering like this did not try men's souls, I confess that I do not know what could. The fourth day, 
Just at dark, we obtained a half-pound of lean fresh beef and a gill of wheat for each man. Whether we had any salt to season so delicious a morsel, I have forgotten, but I am sure we had no bread, except the wheat. But I will assure the reader that we had the best of sauce, that is, we had keen appetites. When the wheat was so swelled by boiling as to be beyond the danger of swelling in the stomachs, it was deposited there without ceremony. After this we sometimes got a little beef, but no bread. We, however, once in a while got a little rice, but as to flour or bread I do not recollect that I saw a morsel of either, I mean wheaten, during the winter. All the bread kind we had was Indian meal. We continued here, starving and freezing, until I think sometime in the month of February, when the two Connecticut brigades were ordered to the lines near Staten Island. The small parties from the army which had been sent to the lines were often surprised and taken by the enemy or cut to pieces by them. These circumstances, it seems, determined the commander-in-chief to have a sufficient number of troops there to withstand the enemy even should they come in considerable force. And now a long continuance of our hardships appeared unavoidable. The first brigade took up its quarters in a village called Westfield, and the second in another called Springfield. We were put into the houses with the inhabitants. A fine addition we were, doubtless, to their families, but as we were so plentifully furnished with necessities, especially in the article of food, we could not become burdensome to them, as will soon appear. I think it necessary, before I proceed farther, to prevent any repetition, to give some information of the nature and kind of duty we had to perform while here, that the reader may form a clearer idea of the hardships we had to encounter in the discharge of it. Well, then, I shall speak only of the first brigade, as I belong to that. As to the second, I know no more of it, than that those who belonged to it doubtless had as hard duty and hard times as we had in the first. I say, as I belong to the first brigade, I shall endeavor to describe some of the hardships and troubles we had to contend with. We were stationed about six miles from Elizabethtown, which is situated near the waters which separate Staten Island from the main. We had sent a detachment to this place which continued on duty there several days. It consisted of about two hundred men, and hard to form several guards while there. We had another guard which consisted of about one hundred men, at a place called Woodbridge. This guard stayed there two days before they were relieved, and was ten miles from our quarters. Woodbridge also lay by the same waters. We likewise kept a quarter guard in every regiment at home, besides other small guards. Our duty all winter and spring was thus. Suppose I went upon the Woodbridge Guard. I must march from the parade at eight o'clock in the morning, go a distance of ten miles, and relieve the guard already there, which would commonly bring it to about twelve o'clock, stay there two days and two nights, then be relieved and take up the afternoon of that day to reach our quarters at Westfield, where, as soon as I could get into my quarters, and generally before I could lay by my arms, warned for Elizabethtown the next day. Thus it was the whole time we lay here, which was from the middle of February to the latter part of May following. It was Woodbridge and Elizabethtown, Elizabethtown and Woodbridge, alternately, till I was absolutely sick of hearing the names mentioned. And now I will relate some of the incidents and accidents that occurred during this very pleasant tour, that is, as far as I was concerned. The first thing I shall mention is one that has so very seldom been heard of by the reader that it may be he has forgotten it. I mean, we had next to nothing to eat. As I have just before observed, we had no wheat flour, 
all the breadstuff we got was Indian corn meal and Indian corn flour. Our Connecticut Yankees were as ignorant of making this meal or flour into bread as a wild Indian would be of making pound cake. All we had any idea of doing with it was to make it into hasty pudding. And sometimes, though very rarely, we would chance to get a little milk, or perhaps a little cider, or some such thing to wash it down with, and when we could get nothing to qualify it, we ate it as it was. The Indian flour was much worse than the meal, being so fine it was as clammy as glue and as insipid as starch. We were glad to get even this, for nothing else could be had. Flesh meat was nearly as scarce as wheat and bread. We had but very little of the former, and not any of the latter. There was not the least thing to be obtained from the inhabitants, they being so near the enemy, and many of them seemed to be as poor as ourselves. The guard kept at Woodbridge, being so small and so far from the troops, and so near the enemy, that they were obliged to be constantly on the alert. We had three different houses that we occupied alternately during the night. The first was an empty house, the second the parson's house, and the third a farmer's house. We had to remove from one to the other of these houses three times every night, from fear of being surprised by the enemy. There was no trusting the inhabitants, for many of them were friendly to the British, and we did not know who were or who were not, and consequently were distrustful of them all, unless it were one or two. The parson was a staunch Whig, as the friends to the country were called in those times, and the farmer mentioned before was another, and perhaps more that we were not acquainted with. Be that as it would, we were shy of trusting them. Here, especially in the night, we were obliged to keep about one half of the guard upon sentry, and besides these, small patrolling parties on all the roads leading towards the enemy. But with all the vigilance we could exercise, we could hardly escape being surprised and cut off by the enemy. They exerted themselves more than common to take some of our guards, because we had challenged them to do it, and had bid them defiance. I was once upon this guard. It was in the spring, after the snow had gone off the ground. Myself and another young man took for our tour of duty to patrol upon a certain road during the night. About midnight, or a little after, our guard being then at the farmer's house, which was the farthest back from the water's side of any of the houses we occupied, this distance caused some of our sentinels to be three miles from the guard. We patrolled from the guard to the farthest sentries, which were two, or in military phrase, a double sentinel, who were standing upon a bridge. After we had visited these sentinels and were returning, we passed the parson's house. There was a muddy plash in the road nearly opposite the house, and as it happened, the man with me passed on the side next to the house, and I passed on the other. After we had got clear of the water and had come together again, he told me there were British soldiers lying in the garden and dooryard. I asked him if he was sure of it. He said he was, for, said he, I was near enough to have reached them with my hand and there been no fence between. We stopped and consulted what was best for us to do. I was for going back and giving them a starter, but my comrade declined. He thought it would be best to return to the guard and inform the officers what we had discovered and let them act their pleasure. We accordingly did so, when the captain of the guard sent down two horsemen that attended upon the guard to serve in such circumstances, and to carry and fetch intelligence, to ascertain whether it was as we had reported. The horsemen, finding it true, instead of returning and informing the officers as they were ordered to, fired their carbines, one into the house, 
the ball lodging in the bedpost where the parson and his wife were in bed, and the other into the garden or dooryard. The British, finding they were discovered, walked off with themselves without even returning a single shot. We were sorry, then, that we had not given them a loving salute as we passed them, and thus saved the horsemen the trouble. This was one among many of the sly methods the British took to surprise and take our guards. At another time I was upon the Elizabethtown station. Being one night on my post as sentinel, I observed a stir among the troops composing the detachment. I inquired the cause of a passing officer, who told me the British were upon Halstead's Point, which was a point of land about two miles from the main body of the detachment, where we had a guard consisting of a sergeant, a corporal, and ten privates. The circumstances were as follows. The guard informed the man of the house where the guard was kept, a Mr. Holstead, the owner of the land that formed the point, that they had heard boats pass and repass at some distance below during the night. He said they were the British, and that they had landed some of the refugees, as that neighborhood abounded with such sort of cattle, but that it would be next to impossible to detect them, as they had so many friends in that quarter, and many of the enemy belonging to those parts, they knew every lurking place in all the neighboring country. The only way for the guard was to be vigilant and prevent a surprise. When the guard was relieved in the morning, the new one was informed of these circumstances, and cautioned to be on the lookout. Accordingly, at night, they consulted Mr. Holstead, who advised them to place a sentinel in a certain spot that had been neglected, for, said he, they know your situation better than you do yourselves, and if they come, they will enter your precincts by the way I have pointed out to you, and, continued he, they will come about the time of the setting of the moon. Agreeable to his advice, the sergeant stationed a sentinel at that place and prepared for them. Just as had been predicted, about the time the moon was setting, which was about ten o'clock, they came, and at the same point. The first sentinel that occupied that post had not stood out his trick before he saw them coming. He immediately hailed them with the usual question, Who comes there? They answered him that if he would not discharge his piece, they would not hurt him, but if he did, they would kill him. The sentinel, being true to his trust, paid no regard to their threats, but fired his piece and ran for the house to alarm the guard. In his way he had to cross a hedge fence, in passing which he got entangled in the bushes, as it was supposed, and the enemy coming up thrust a bayonet through him. They then inflicted twelve more wounds upon him with bayonets and rushed on for the house, to massacre the remainder of the guard, but they had taken the alarm and left the house. The refugees, for such they were, entered the house, but found none of the men to murder. Mr. Holstead had two young daughters in the house, one of which secreted herself in a closet and remained throughout the whole transaction undiscovered. The other they caught and compelled to light a candle and attend them about the house in search of the rebels, but, but without finding any or offering any other abuse to the young lady, which was indeed a wonder. When they could find none to wreak their vengeance upon, they cut open the knapsacks of the guard and strewed the Indian meal about the floor, laughing at the poverty of the Yankee soldiery, who had nothing but hog's fodder, as they termed it, to eat. After they had done all the mischief they could in the house, they proceeded to the barn and drove off five or six head of Mr. Holstead's young cattle, took them down upon the point and killed them, and went off in their boats that had come across from the island for that purpose, to their den among the British. There was another young man, belonging to the guard, on his post at the extremity of the point. When the refugees came down to embark, they cut off this man's retreat, there being a sunken marsh on each side of the point, covered with dry flags and reeds. 
When he challenged them, they answered him the same as they did the other sentinel. But he paid as little attention to their threats as the other one had done, although apparently in a much worse situation, but fired his musket and sprang into the marsh among the reeds, where he sunk to his middle in the mud, and there remained unperceived till they went off, and thus preserved his life. Such maneuvers the British continued to exhibit the whole time we were stationed here, but could never do any other damage to us than killing poor Twist, the name of the young man. Unfortunate young man! I could not restrain my tears when I saw him next day, with his breast like a sieve, caused by the wounds. He lost his own life by endeavoring to save the lives of others, massacred by his own countrymen, who ought to have been fighting in the common cause of the country, instead of murdering him. I have been more particular in relating this circumstance, that the reader may be informed what people there were in the times of the Revolution. Mr. Holstead told me that almost the whole of his neighborhood had joined the enemy, and that his next-door neighbor was in this very party. There was a large number in this place and its vicinity by the name of Hetfield, who were notorious rascals. A certain captain of militia, residents in these parts, who, upon some occasion, had business to transact within the reach of these miscreants, they caught and hanged him up without ceremony, judge or jury. General Washington demanded the perpetrators of this infernal deed of the British authorities in New York, but they declined complying with his demand. He, therefore, selected a British captain, a prisoner, a son, and I believe an only son, of an opulent English lady, and put him in close confinement, threatening to execute him unless the murderers were given up to justice. But his distressed mother, by her strong maternal intercession with the king and court of France, prevailed on them, and their remonstrances to General Washington, joined with his own benevolent feelings, so far wrought upon him that he set the captain at liberty, and thus these murderous villains escaped the punishment due to their infernal deeds. We returned on this tedious duty, getting nothing to eat but our old fare, Indian meal, and not over much of that, till the middle of May, when we were relieved, but we remained at our quarters eight or ten days after that. Our duty was not quite so hard now as it had been, but that faithful companion, Hunger, stuck as close to us as ever. He was a faithful associate, I will not say friend, for indeed poverty is no friend, nor has he any admirers, though he has an extensive acquaintance. The soldiers were well acquainted with him during the whole period of the Revolutionary War. We were here at the time the dark day happened, 19th of May. It has been said that the darkness was not so great in New Jersey as in New England. How great it was there I do not know, but I know that it was very dark where I was then in New Jersey. So much so that the fowls went to their roosts, the cocks crew, and the whippoorwills sung their usual serenade. The people had to light candles in their houses to enable them to see to carry on their usual business. The night was as uncommonly dark as the day was. We left Westfield about the 25th of May, and went to Baskinridge to our old winter cantonments. We did not reoccupy the huts which we built, but some others that the troops had left, upon what account I have forgotten. Here the monster hunger still attended us. He was not to be shaken off by any efforts we could use, for here was the old story of starving as riff as ever. We had entertained some hopes that when we left the lines and joined the main army we should fare a little better, but we found that there was no betterment in the case. For several days after we rejoined the army we got a little musty bread and a little beef, about every other day, but this lasted only a short time, and then we got nothing at all. The men were now exasperated beyond endurance. 
They could not stand it any longer. They saw no other alternative but to starve to death, or break up the army, give all up, and go home. This was a hard matter for the soldiers to think upon. They were truly patriotic, they loved their country, and they had already suffered everything short of death in this cause. And now, after such extreme hardships, to give up all was too much, but to starve to death was too much also. What was to be done? Here was the army starved and naked, and there their country sitting still and expecting the army to do notable things while fainting from sheer starvation. All things considered, the army was not to be blamed. Reader, suffer what we did, and you will say so too. We had borne as long as human nature could endure, and to bear longer we considered folly. Accordingly, one pleasant day, the men spent the most of their time upon the parade, growling like sore-headed dogs. At evening roll-call they began to show their dissatisfaction by snapping at the officers and acting contrary to their orders. After their dismissal from parade the officers went, as usual, to their quarters, except the adjutant, who happened to remain, giving details for the next day's duty to the orderly sergeants, or some other business, when the men, none of whom had left the parade, began to make him sensible that they had something in train. He said something that did not altogether accord with the soldiers' ideas of propriety. One of the men retorted, the adjutant called him a mutinous rascal, or some other epithet, and then left the parade. This man, then stamping the butt of his musket upon the ground, as much as to say, I am in a passion, called out, Who will parade with me? The whole regiment immediately fell in and formed. We had made no plans for our future operations, but while we were consulting how to proceed, the fourth regiment, which lay on our left, formed and came and paraded with us. We now concluded to go in a body to the other two regiments that belonged to our brigade, and induce them to join with us. These regiments lay forty or fifty rods in front of us, with a brook and bushes between. We did not wish to have any one in particular to command, lest he might be singled out for a court-martial to exercise its clemency upon. We therefore gave directions to the drummers to give certain signals on the drums. At the first signal we shouldered our arms, at the second we faced, at the third we began our march to join with the other two regiments, and went off with music playing. By this time, our officers had obtained knowledge of our military maneuvering, and some of them had run across the brook, by a nearer way than we had taken, it being now quite dark, and informed the officers of those regiments of our approach and supposed intentions. These officers ordered their men to parade as quick as possible without arms. When that was done, they stationed a camp guard. That happened to be near at hand, between the men and their huts, which prevented them from entering and taking their arms, which they were very anxious to do. Colonel Miggs, of the 6th Regiment, exerted himself to prevent his men from obtaining their arms, until he received a severe wound in his side by a bayonet in the scuffle, which cooled his courage at the time. He said he had always considered himself the soldier's friend, and thought the soldiers regarded him as such, but had reason now to conclude he might be mistaken. Colonel Miggs was truly an excellent man and a brave officer. The man, whoever he was, that wounded him, doubtless had no particular grudge against him. It was dark, and the wound was given, it is probable, altogether unintentionally. Colonel Miggs was afterwards Governor of Ohio and Postmaster General. When we found the officers had been too crafty for us, we returned with grumbling instead of music, the officers following in the rear growling in concert. One of the men in the rear calling out, Halt in front! The officers seized upon him like wolves on a sheep, 
and dragged him out of the ranks, intending to make an example of him for being a mutinous rascal. But the bayonets of the men pointing at their breast as thick as hatchet teeth compelled them quickly to relinquish their hold of him. We marched back to our own parade and then formed again. The officers now began to coax us to disperse to our quarters, but that had no more effect upon us than their threats. One of them slipped away into the bushes, and after a short time returned. Counterfeiting to have come directly from headquarters, said he, There is good news for you boys. There has just arrived a large drove of cattle for the army. But this piece of finesse would not avail. All the answer he received for his labor was, Go and butcher them, or some other slight expression. The lieutenant colonel of the 4th Regiment now came on to the parade. He could persuade his men, he said, to go peaceably to their quarters. After a good deal of palaver, he ordered them to shoulder their arms, but the men taking no notice of him or his order, he fell into a violent passion, threatening them with the bitterest punishment if they did not immediately obey his orders. After spending a whole quiver of the arrows of his rhetoric, he again ordered them to shoulder their arms, but he met with the same success that he did at the first trial. He therefore gave up the contest as hopeless, and left us and walked off to his quarters, chewing the end of resentment all the way, and how much longer I neither knew nor cared. The rest of the officers, after they found that they were likely to meet with no better success than the colonel, walked off likewise to their huts. While we were under arms, the Pennsylvania troops, who lay not far from us, were ordered under arms and marched off their parades upon, as we were told, a secret expedition. They had surrounded us, unknown to either us or themselves, except the officers. At length, getting an item of what was going forward, they inquired of some of the stragglers what was going on among the Yankees. Being informed that they had mutinied on account of the scarcity of provisions, let us join them, said they. Let us join the Yankees. They are good fellows and have no notion of lying here like fools and starving. Their officers needed no further hinting. The troops were quickly ordered back to their quarters, from fear that they would join in the same song with the Yankees. We knew nothing of all this for some time afterwards. After our officers had left us to our own option, we dispersed to our huts and laid by our arms of our own accord. But the worm of hunger gnawing so keen kept us from being entirely quiet. We therefore still kept upon the parade in groups, venting our spleen at our country and government, then at our officers, and then at ourselves for our imbecility, in staying there and starving in detail for an ungrateful people, who did not care what became of us, so they could enjoy themselves while we were keeping a cruel enemy from them. While we were thus venting our gall against we knew not who, Colonel Stewart of the Pennsylvania line, with two or three other officers of that line, came to us and questioned us respecting our unsoldierly conduct, as he termed it. We told him he needed not to be informed of the cause of our present conduct, but that we had borne till we considered further forbearance pusillanimity, that the times, instead of mending, were growing worse, and finally that we were determined not to bear or forbear much longer. We were unwilling to desert the cause of our country when in distress, that we knew her cause involved our own, but what signified our perishing in the act of saving her, when that very act would inevitably destroy us, and she must finally perish with us? Why do you not go to your officers, said he, and complain in a regular manner? We told them we had repeatedly complained to them, but they would not hear us. Your officers, said he, are gentlemen. They will attend to you. I know them. They cannot refuse to hear you. But, said he, 
Your officers suffer as much as you do. We all suffer. The officers have no money to purchase supplies with any more than the private men have, and if there is nothing in the public store we must fare as hard as you. I have no other resources than you have to depend upon. I had not a sixpence to purchase a partridge that was offered me the other day. Besides, said he, you know not how much you injure your characters by such conduct. You Connecticut troops have won immortal honor to yourselves the winter past, by your perseverance, patience, and bravery, and now you are shaking it off at your heels. But I will go and see your officers and talk with them myself. He went, but what the result was I never knew. This Colonel Stewart was an excellent officer, much beloved and respected by the troops of the line he belonged to. He possessed great personal beauty. The Philadelphia ladies styled him the Irish beauty. Our stir did us some good in the end, for we had provisions directly after, so we had no great cause for complaint for some time. About this time there were about three thousand men ordered out for a particular field day, for the Prussian general Baron de Steuben to exercise his maneuvering functions upon. We marched off our regimental parades at dawn of day and went three or four miles to Morristown to a fine plain where we performed a variety of military evolutions. We were furnished with a plenty of blank cartridges, had eight or ten field pieces, and made a great noise, if nothing more. About one or two o'clock we ceased, and were supplied with a gill of rum each. Having had nothing to eat since the night before, the liquor took violent hold, and there were divers queer tricks exhibited both by officers and men. I saw a Pennsylvania soldier daggering off with three espontoons on his shoulder that he had gleaned up after some of his officers. This day was nearly equal to the whiskey scrape at the Schulkiel in 1777. In the month of June, 5,000 British and Hessian troops advanced into New Jersey, burnt several houses in Elizabethtown and the Presbyterian Meeting House, and most of the village of Springfield. They also barbarously murdered by shooting Mrs. Caldwell, the wife of the minister of that place. What their further intentions were could not be ascertained by our commanders. Sometimes it was conjectured that they were aiming at a quantity of public stores deposited in Morristown. Sometimes that it was for a diversion in favor of their main army, by endeavoring to amuse us till their forces could push up the North River and attack West Point. Our army was accordingly kept in a situation to relieve either in case of an attack. While we remained in this situation, our army was infested by spies from the British. I saw three of those vermin one day hanging on one gallows. The enemy soon after recoiled into their shell again at New York. During these operations we were encamped at a place called Short Hills. While lying here I came near taking another final discharge from the army in consequence of my indiscretion and levity. I was one day upon a camp guard. We kept our guard in the fields, and to defend us from the night dew we laid down under some trees which stood upon the brink of a very deep gully. The sides and tops of the banks of this gully were covered with walnut and hickory saplings, three, four, or five inches diameter at their butts, and many of them were fifty or sixty feet in height. In the morning, before the guard was relieved, some of the men, and I among the rest to be sure, I was never far away when such kind of business was going forward, took it into our heads to divert ourselves by climbing these trees as high as they would bear us, and then swinging off our feet the weight would bring us by a gentle flight to the ground, when the tree would resume its former position. After exercising ourselves some time at this diversion, I thought I would have one capital swing. 
Accordingly, I climbed one of the tallest trees that stood directly on the verge of the gully, and swung off over the gully. When the tree had bent to about an horizontal position, it snapped off as short as a pipe-stem. I suppose I was nearly or quite forty feet from the ground, from which distance I came feet foremost to the ground at quick time. The ground was soft, being loamy and entirely free from stones, so that it did me but little hurt. But I held the part of the tree I had broken off firmly in my grasp, and when I struck the ground with my feet, I brought it, with all the force of my weight and its own, directly upon the top of my unthinking skull, which knocked me as stiff as a ring-bolt. It was several minutes before I recovered recollection enough to know or remember what I had been about, but I weathered the point, although it gave me a severe headache for several days afterwards, as a memento to keep upon the ground, and not attempt to act the part of a flying squirrel. Another affair happened soon after this, which did not set very well on my stomach at the time. I had been on a detached party for four or five days, and had had nothing to eat, for at least eight and forty hours of the latter part of the time. When I came to camp there was nothing there. I strolled off to where some butchers were killing cattle, as I supposed, for the general officers, for they must have victuals, let the poor men fare as they would, and by some means procured an ox's liver. I then went home, and soon had a quantity of it in my kettle. The more I seized it, the harder it grew, but I soon filled my stomach with it, and it being night I turned in. I had not slept long before I awoke, feeling much like Jonathan, when he had the dry bellyache for want of some fourth-proof Jamaica spirits, that is, I felt dreadfully. I worried it out till morning, when, as soon as I thought I could call upon the doctors without too much disturbing their honors, I applied to one for relief. He gave me a large dose of tartar emetic, the usual remedy in the army for all disorders, even sore eyes, though he could not have given me a better one for my then present malady. He gave me ample directions how to proceed, a part of which was to take one half or two-thirds of the potion, and wait a given time, and if that did not operate, then to swallow the remainder. It did not work till I had the hole in my crop, nor then neither. I waited some time for it, but growing impatient, I wandered off into the fields and bushes to see what effect exercise would have. I had not strolled a half or three-fourths of a mile from camp, when it took full hold of my gizzard. I then sat down upon a log, or stone, or something else, and discharged the hard chunks of liver like grape-shot from a field-piece. I had no water or any other thing to ease my retchings. Oh, I thought I must die in good earnest. The liver still kept coming, and I looked at every heave for my own liver to come next, but that happened to be too well fastened to part from its moorings. Perhaps the reader will think this a trifling matter, happening in the ordinary course of things, but I think it a suffering, and not a small one neither, of a revolutionary soldier. End of chapter 6, part 1